Welcome to Willard Church of the Nazarene. We're glad you're here. We can't wait to share the service with you. Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 13. Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 13. Would you stand with me in honor of God's word? Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 13. We're going to read a couple verses and then we're going to skip to verse 35. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms placed his hands on them, and blessed them. Skipping down to verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, would you just speak to our hearts right now? With whatever message you have. And Lord, maybe we respond. May our response be, we'll follow you in every way in every part of our lives. Lord, we love you and we give you praise. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In the first part of what we read, Jesus makes this interesting statement. And he says, hey, unless you receive the kingdom of God like a little child, you'll never enter it. Unless you receive the kingdom of God as a little child, you'll never enter it. If I were to ask you, have you received the kingdom of God like a little child? Would you be able to answer that? Would you have an answer for that? It's a bit cryptic, but apparently 
it's very important, right? Then not too long after that, James and John, they are brothers, show that they have no idea of what Jesus has been talking about, right? Because they ask for something that goes against his teaching, what he's been communicating to him. They go for a power grab, right? They get him alone, and they're like, hey, Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask you, ask of you. Now, when I read that, I'm like, oh, my goodness, are you seriously doing that? Are you seriously saying that? Are you serious? Did, did you just ask Jesus for that? I, I can't believe that they started off this way. And then I remember, ah, you know what? I've said that same prayer myself. I've asked Jesus for things that I know goes against his teaching, thinking that uh, maybe he'll just grant that, right? It doesn't line up for his word, but we still want him to do those things. Let's, let's be careful in that. Their, their request, hey, when you become king, when you come into your glory, they're thinking king of Israel, right? We want to be at your right and left. We want to be powerful. We want those positions. We want to be next in importance after you. Well, the rest of the disciples we know find out about this request, and they're outraged. They're indignant, right? And so Jesus, in order to clarify what he's been teaching, because obviously they aren't getting it, he tells them about his death. He tells them about what's, he's gonna, what he's going to face. And he says, serve each other, right? That's what you need to focus in on. And then he ends with this amazing statement. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, right? But to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What I want to do is kind of go backwards through this scripture because I think it makes a little bit more sense when we do it. We need to understand what he came to do first, right? Why did he have to die? And eventually, how does it connect to being uh, like a little child and understanding it. What he came to do, why did he have to die, and what is this whole thing about being little children? So, first, what did he come to do? We just read that, right? He came to gave his, give his life. This is where Jesus separates himself from all the successful world religion founders. This is where Jesus separates himself from all the successful world religion founders and puts himself into the failed world religion founder group. What do I mean? Every successful world religion founder overcame their enemies and lived a long life. Every one of them. In the Bible, you have Moses, right? Died old and full of years. You have Confucius. He died in his 70s with his disciples around him. He was uh, an honored man in his hometown. The Buddha died at 80. They said in complete serenity, also surrounded by his disciples. Muhammad died, died at a ripe old age with a united Arabia surrounding him. They all overcame their enemies. They had been persecuted. They had been arrested. They had been exiled in some cases. But they all overcame their enemies and lived a long life. So they were successful. Then you have another group of religious figures, hundreds, or maybe even more of them. Most of these people you've never heard of. You've never heard of because they were defeated. They died. And their religions went to nothingness. 
A recent example, David Koresh in the Branch Davidians of Waco, offshoot of Christianity, offshoot of seven-day Adventists started, right? This man takes over the movement and claims to be its final prophet, very apocalyptic in his teaching, very much teaching about revelation and his spin on it. Everything comes to the head in the early 90s and the government comes into their compound, right, and lays siege to it. And at the end of a 50-plus 50, 50 day siege, he's shot and killed. Some of you probably have never heard of him. I imagine that in several decades, most of us alive will not remember him or, or, or know about him unless it's some kind of special that comes up along on TV. That's just how it goes, though, when it comes to religions. After all, if the people were following real religions, they would be successful because their God would make them successful, would help them out in their avenue. If you look at the Jewish encyclopedia and look up what they say about Jesus, they say something very interesting. Uh, This is not just a Jewish view. You you could say it's almost a common sense view. The entry in Jesus says this. First, it refers to the place where Jesus cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me, right? And then it says this. Listen to this. This final utterance was in all its implications itself a disproof of the exaggerated claims made for Jesus after his death by his disciples. No real Messiah could suffer such a death. It is impossible. It is an impossible article of belief which detracts from God's sovereignty. This is the common sense view of our world today. This is practical thought. How could Jesus truly be the Messiah if he was put to death in this way? How can he truly be the Son of God if he was defeated by the Roman government, by his enemies? How could this person be the one to bring the kingdom of God when he's defeated in such a horrible way? Right? That's, that's the common thought. That's what people think. And this is what people have trouble understanding, but they don't get it, right? He dies a shameful death. He dies a premature death. He's defeated. And generally what people say is, that's not a hero. That's not a leader. That's not a Messiah. This is a sign of weakness. This is a failure. He didn't even die in battle, right? That could definitely not be God then. That's the practical common sense view. So, he should get lumped into the defeated religious leaders group because it appears like he is defeated. Christianity should have gone to obscurity, right? Should have faded away as a result like all the others. Failures. If you have this time, if you have time, read Acts chapter 5. There's this account where the Jewish high priests and colleagues arrest the disciples and they tell them, don't preach in this Jesus' name, right? This is after Jesus died. Don't preach in his name. And they throw him into jail. And then an angel come and gets him out. And guess what they do right after they get out? They go and preach again in Jesus' name. And so they get arrested again and they get brought before him. And they're like, we told you, don't preach in this guy's name. And Peter very boldly says, we must obey God and not man. And he goes on to preach to them and tells them how they're responsible for Jesus' death, right? 
They're infuriated, these religious leaders. They are infuriated, and they want to have the apostle killed. But one in their midst, a, a, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, says this. Hey, um, don't do this. Listen, if this isn't from God, it'll just go away, Right? Look at, look at all these other people who claim to be the Messiah, and then when they were killed or then when they were stopped, their, their little sects, their little cults just faded away into nothingness. This is going to happen just like them. And then he goes, but listen, if this is from God, then we won't be able to stop it anyways. So let's not just do anything. And we know, of course, what happens. The people who are defeated or destroyed, you generally don't remember. They just kind of go away. You don't hear about it. The religions they found are, are tiny little cults that go into off and die, except for Christianity, right? Something happened to the disciples that overcame the common sense principles. Something happened for the early disciples that changed, from, changed the cross from a proof of defeat to a source of Joy to a symbol of victory. What starts with apparent defeat turns into something that radically changes the lives of the disciples early on, these early followers. A hundred and so, right? At the time of Jesus' death, they're hiding. Their lives, though, were so changed that they became so attractive to other people that other people join in in droves, right? By the thousands. People join in, even though there's persecution later on going on, heavy persecution going on. They even join in, that even though there's a heavy cost that sometimes costs them their life. The people are so fearless when they speak and they preach. It doesn't matter what anybody does to them. They're okay with losing their lives. They grow into the major world religion of our time right? It's completely backwards. It's completely against common sense. We are the ones, we and the ones before us look at the cross, not as a sign of defeat, right? But a sign of love, a sign of victory. Why? What changed for them? Because there was a point when he died, Right? And after that death, that, that they were thinking in a common sense sort of way, and they hid, right? They were devastated. They were shocked. They couldn't believe what just happened to them. They had pictured it going a lot differently than what they experienced, and all of that changed. You see, it, it wasn't until they understood that he died that it changed. It was when they understood why he died that it all changed for them when they really understood that defeat was really a triumph, they understood why he died, and it changed their lives. The cross became a symbol. That's why we wear it. That's why we put it on our homes. That's why we've got it right here. Right? That's why we put it in our logo. A painful, horrible execution device. Right? People make fun of us for wearing it. It's like wearing a, an electric, uh, electrocution chair, right? But it's our source of hope. It's what we look to and see victory. It's what we look to and see the love of our Savior. How much he loved us. Amen? 
I want us to see that there's a big difference in knowing he died and knowing why he died. Because there's a lot of people who think they're Christians sitting in churches every day. They know he died, but don't really get why he died and what that means for their lives. Can I ask you to wrestle with something if you haven't already? Has his death changed your life? Or are you the same as you were before? Has his death totally flipped your life upside down? We like to say, has his death come in and wrecked your life? Or are you the same as you were before? Before you found out that he died. Can you wrestle with that? There should be a remarkable difference in your life. You should look totally different. And if not, then maybe you know he died, but you don't know why he died. And you haven't accepted that. All right, so why did he die? Verse 45, he didn't just die. He, he gave his life as a ransom. I love that word, ransom for many. Unfortunately, we lose some of the uh, richness of this metaphor with the English word ransom that we use. It's translated from the Greek, Greek word lutron. Uh, when we hear the word ransom, we think of kidnapping at a price that has to be paid uh, to the kidnappers. That's partly right, but not all that Jesus wanted to communicate. In Jesus' culture, the original word Lutron took its origins from war. It was the price that was paid to bring back prisoners of war. Prisoners that were in captivity and slavery. Back then, if you attacked a country and, and you were a part of the losing side and you got captured, two things happened to you. One, you were put to death. Or two, you were put into slavery. And I'm not talking an easy slavery, right? We're talking a grinding, painful, horrible slavery. If you were a slave um, in that way, the only way that you would escape is if somebody came and paid a price to free you. Somebody came and gave an enormous amount to your captives so that you could be freed. And, And that's the metaphor that Jesus wants us to get. Hey, you are in a horrible, grinding slavery. But I paid the price for you. Right? I paid the price to set you free. There are two things that happen as a result of this ransom. There's something that happens on the outside, and there's something that happens on the inside. On one hand, there's a debt that needs to be paid for you. Right? If you're in slavery, you, you have been condemned to this life. You're, in, you're enslaved. You have no hope. There's a debt that needs to be paid, but that's not the only thing. There's also a condition on the inside that needs to be changed. There's a condition that he wants us all to experience, and that's liberation. That's freedom. Both must be experienced. Mahatma Gandhi, Indian leader, wrote in his autobiography about Jesus. He said, I could accept Jesus as a martyr and as an embodiment of sacrifice and as a divine teacher. His death on the cross was a great example to the world, but that there is any mysterious and miraculous virtue in it, my heart could not accept. That's what Gandhi said. To Gandhi and to a lot of people, Jesus is a great example, a good teacher, a good person, right? And and if we follow his example, it can affect our lives from the outside. We can strive to be like he was. But Gandhi and a lot of people deny the power of the cross. Deny the power to free 
you on the inside. If you look at all Eastern religions, the cross is helpful. The cross is something that's looked up to because it's an example uh, to combat selfishness. But to them, it doesn't have the power to change you, to make you new, to free you from things like guilt and shame. The idea of a ransom communicates there is something that happens on the outside and inside. Your, your debt is paid on the outside, but you're also changed and your heart is freed from everything on the inside. And that's why you look totally different. That's why you're a, a new person, right? Both of these happen together and simultaneously. Some, sometimes pastors mistakenly try to explain it, that the death of Jesus was just on the outside part. Maybe they said it's like you're in court and you have the guilty verdict, right? Found guilty, but Christ comes and pays the penalty for your uh, sin and takes your place. That, that's a good start, but that doesn't go all the way. There's nothing wrong with that. It just doesn't fulfill the idea, the full idea of ransom. The death of Christ brings us out of bondage and frees us. What type of bondage? Going back to Eastern religions, they all uh, agree with Christianity that there's a problem with mankind. What's that problem? We're all enslaved to selfishness. We're all enslaved to self. Eastern religions do a much better job pointing this out. In America, though, we can point to somebody else that is selfish, that's more selfish to us, and we can think that person's selfish, but I'm good because I'm not like them. That's what we do here. And we just automatically think we're not a slave to selfishness. After all, we give money, right? We come to church, we volunteer at different places, we're good. Not like that person over there, but the truth of it is we all battle self. We all battle selfishness. The Bible teaches it. We have a great example of what we just read in James and John, right? These are two disciples of Jesus. Two people that have been following Jesus for years, right? And they, they, they show themselves to be extremely selfish. Hey, we want to be first. We want everybody else to bow down to us. The fact is, we're born selfish. You don't have to teach somebody to be selfish. We all battle selfishness. And it doesn't start with selfishness, right? It doesn't stop there. We, we can't take criticism. We can't admit we're wrong. We're never wrong, right? We've always got an excuse. We've always got a reason. We need people to love us. We're dependent on our children. We're dependent on our parents. We're dependent on our friends. We're over-dependent on our looks. We're constantly insecure. We're living selfishly. So what's the answer? What, what's going to change that? Well, the Bible says the problem isn't really selfishness in general. It's that we're alienated from God. We're cut off from the source of our significance. And here's what the cross does. The cross does not give you some kind of philosophy. It does not give you, as Eastern religion does, something to combat selfishness. Instead, it gives you a story. A true story. A story of ransom. See, almost all other religions, philosophies, basically say, don't be selfish. It's wrong. Don't be selfish. Don't be in bondage to those things. You're valuable. The universe or, or some small G God loves you. And so you hear that and you think, I'm not, I'm not going to be selfish. I, I'm going I'm to follow that. And you're good for a while, right? You go out and serve people and you help people, but it doesn't change you. It makes you feel a little bit better, but it doesn't change you. It's just words. 
It's just information. It doesn't have the power of the gospel behind it. Eastern religion looks to the cross an example. But if it's just an example, that's stupid. It's, it's completely dumb to look at the cross as an example. I mean, think about it. If the cross is just an example, that doesn't make any sense. It's like me and you walking along a river, and I say to you as your pastor, you know, I, I love you. I care about you. I want you to just know how much I love you, right? And uh, I love that you come to church, and I just want you to show you how much I love you, and I jump in the river and drown. Right? Is there anybody in here that would think, oh, wow, what a great love that he had for us? No. No. Right? Nobody's going to say, look how he loved us. He's such an example, a great example of sacrificial love. No, you're going to say, that dude was messed up. That dude's out of his head, right? That poor guy, he'd probably be appalled by it. That's dumb. That's what you'd say. It's not a good example. But what if we're walking along that same river, right, and you fall in? And what if I jump in? into that icy river maybe and manage to get you out, but I end up dying in the process. That speaks to you, right? That will speak to your heart. That will show you about real sacrificial love. That's when we see it. Giving your life sacrificially does nothing. If the cross is just the cross and can't help you, it's a bad example. It's, it's foolishness, Right? Unless there's an object of a paying of a debt, unless there's a subject of liberation. Jesus Christ comes and says, I got something deeper than just principles and philosophies. Look at all these different gods of all these religions. They say they love you, right? But I've proven it. Let me tell you the story. Let me tell you about the gospel, the good news. Because you see, gives his life a ransom for, the word for in the Greek is the word anti, it means instead of. It means to substitute himself. And what he's saying is, I want you to see what I've done for you. In the Potomac River, there's this one bridge named the Arlen D. Williams Bridge. And you see, on, in January of 1982, Air Florida Flight 90 was taking off, and there there was a bunch of ice on its wings and it started to lose altitude and actually hit one of the bridges and crashed into the river. When the rescue helicopter got there, they saw one man at the end of the plane and so they lower this line to him and they bring the line up and they're expecting to see this man but they see somebody else. They look down, there's this man there. They lower the line again to him. They bring somebody up, here it's somebody else, right? They did this four or five times until the final time they lowered the line down and nothing came back up. The, the man kept putting somebody else on that line. That man, of course, is Arland D. Williams. He'd given his place of salvation to somebody else four or five times. I don't know about you, but that moves me. That sacrifice to save somebody is what it's about. Sacrifice alone does not move you. Substitutionary sacrifice does, though, right? And it should totally rock your world because that's what Christ did for each and every one of us. 
All religions have a God that supposedly loves you. But how do you know it? Jesus has a story, a story of ransom that shows it. Here's the proof. He gave his life as a ransom for many. And that and only that will come in like a wrecking ball in your life, right? And totally change everything. It'll totally flip everything upside down. It will totally liberate you from selfishness if you allow it. It changes everything. Why? Because you know the value. When you look at the cross, you know the value. You know your value, right? You know what you mean to him. Money is no longer significance, a source of significance in the face of that love, in the face of that value. Money is just a tool, right? People aren't a source of significance when you know what the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords thinks of you. When you know he was willing to substitute himself and take your punishment and your death so that, not just to take it, so that you could be freed, so that you could have your life totally changed. That's where the value comes in. That's what frees you, frees you from having to compete with other people. We talked about that in Sunday school, right? Just frees you from guilt, from shame, from having to be somebody you just aren't. Well, how do you connect with that? Ah, that's where the little kids come in, right? You have to become a little child. What's that mean? It's a metaphor. There's a lot of things that you don't want to be like little ch- children about, right? Children can be very childish and spiritually childish. There's, there's a lot of us who might be still in that area, but that's not what it means. I, I think it means two things, all right? Children are very interesting. On one hand, children are dependent. Uh, you have to feel helpless. You have to realize you're helpless, right? We all naturally want to earn our way to heaven, Christians, non-Christians. We all think we can do it. We all think we, we, we know better. We think we can earn this. Uh, we think we can be a good person, and that somehow earns us heaven, right? We all compare ourselves to other people to feel better about ourselves, or at least we're not like this political person or, or this person in the news or this athlete or this person who's utterly failing, and, and we can feel a lot better about ourselves. At least we're not like that drug person, right? At least like, we're not like them. We're a much better person. But Isaiah 64, 6, it says, when it comes to all religious things that we do to earn our salvations, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. That's what we have to offer a holy God. Only filthy rags. Anything we can offer to God, to a holy, perfect God, is nothingness. Right? You have to realize that you're just a child. You have to realize your dependence on Christ, paying your debt on the cross. You have to accept it. Right? He died for me. The only hope I have, the, the older I get, the closer I go to God, the more I realize just how many filthy rags I have. I got nothing to give to him. I got nothing that can earn me even close to salvation. I am utterly and totally 100% dependent on the cross and what he did on it. It is my only hope, 
right? And you've got to be the same way, like a little child, completely dependent on your father. So on one hand, you have to realize you're helpless and dependent. On the other hand, yeah, and these go hand in hand. You also have to realize you're accepted. Children have this expectation that they're accepted all the time, right? They expect to be loved. They are totally sure of this unless they're abused, right? We think we have to earn it. And if we don't earn it, then we're out of here and God's just going to kick us out, right? We're going to be rejected. So when we screw up, what do we do? We hide. We hide from our father, right? When kids screw up, what do they do? They run to their father. They run to their parents, right? Because they expect their parents to put their arms around them and just love them. Even when they mess up, even when it's not they're just in trouble, right? It's even when they screw up, they come running to their father who embraces them. It's a place of safety, right? It's a place of total acceptance. And my friends, I think we struggle with that because we think, ah, oh, we just screwed everything up. I'm going to have to do something to make up for this, right? But no, you come to the Father because you realize there is nothing you can do to earn salvation. It's a gift from God. And when you truly get that, it has to change your life. It has to drop you to your knees, right? And the weight of that love. It has to. It cannot not change you. It cannot not totally flip your lives upside down. So I asked you, can you wrestle with that? Is your life totally different? Has your life been changed? Do you see a, a totally different path that you're on? Is, is God softening your heart? Is he changing you? Or you, do you just look the same as you did before Christ? If you look the same, I'd say, do you get it? Do you get what he's done for you? Do you get the price that's paid for you? Do you get that you're, listen, the more righteous you are, the harder it is to get this. The more of a good person you are, the harder it is to get this. The more you know how you're not a good person, (laughs) the easier it is to get this. If you're a righteous person, if you think you're a good person, this is going to be hard for you. Right? But if you get it, man, it'll... It'll change your life. It'll set you free. If you're in doubt, look at the cross. Look to the cross, right? I could tell you go to the cross, see your value, and it's an amazing view. But that isn't all of it. That's not all of it. You see, there's one other part. The cross, yes, it shows you your value. But it shows you your value when we were at our worst. Do you get that? It doesn't just show you your value. It shows you your value when you're at the worst. Right? You can come up to me and say, James, you're a kind man. That'd be great. I'd appreciate that. Right? But if my wife comes up and says that, wow. If she thinks that, wow. Why? Because she knows me. She knows me intimately, right? She's not just seeing me at my best, not just when I'm putting my face on, right? She's seeing me at my worst. 
She not only she not only has seen me at my worst, she's experienced my worst. She doesn't just know I'm selfish. She's been on the wrong end of my selfishness. So when she says, James, I love you, that's the stuff that changes you, right? That's the stuff that impacts you deep down. And when the Savior of the universe tells you, I love you, when the Savior of the universe says, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, right? When the Savior of the universe says, I love you so much, I've died for you. That has to change your life. That has to flip your life upside down. That's the truth of the cross. That's the revelation. God has seen us at our worst, and yet he loved us so much he still died for us. He didn't say get it all together, get right, clean this stuff up, and then you can come to me. He did it while we're at, his, while we're at our worst. And when you see that, man, it affects you. It frees you. I, I can come to him when I'm at my worst and not worry because he's going to accept me. Why is he going to accept me? Because he died for everything I did, for all my sins. You got to get both of that, both of those things. I, I hope you get this. In fact, I'm just wondering if there's anybody in here who, who feels that tug on their heart right now. Maybe, maybe the whole reason that we don't have a lot of people here is so that we can just be a little bit more intimate. I don't know. Is there anybody that feels the tug in their heart? Maybe, maybe you're understanding salvation in a little bit different way. Maybe you get it a little bit more than you've gotten it before and you feel that Christ is calling you. Maybe you've been kind of doing your own thing. And, and it's not a call of you need to get straightened up. It's a call. You need to run to the cross. You need to give your life to him. I'm just curious. Is there anybody in here that would say that? Man, you know, I've been living for me, and I just want to give him everything because I'm just realizing right now what he's done for me. Anybody in here, is that speaking to you? I hope we all get that. I hope we all get it. I hope we all accept it. I hope we all submit to it. I hope you find freedom in that. Right? I hope you quit comparing yourself to somebody else. We were, we were talking in Sunday school. We didn't want to be compared to Doug Lillo. Nancy. Right? He doesn't compare us to each other. He compares us to Jesus. Right? That's who we want to be like. That's who we strive to be like. That's who we want to just embrace. That's who we want to give our lives to. I pray that we do that. I pray that, I pray that you realize that you are ultimately dependent on him and there's nothing, nothing that you can give to earn your salvation. It's only by accepting him and the free gift that's given you. And I pray that you accept it, right? I pray that you don't think too highly of yourself, right? And you realize you're dependent on him. But I also pray that you don't think too lowly of the love of Jesus Christ. I pray you embrace it. George Whitfield, famous Anglican evangelist in the 18th century, very historically significant person. At, at the end of his sermons, it's kind of weird, he would say this, go and learn what this means. The blood of Christ cleanses us 
from all sin. At first, I was like, that sounds a little bit weird, right? It seems easy to understand. Why, why would I have to go and, and learn this and understand this? You know, after all, he would be just preaching about it, and he would explain it in a sermon. And then he would say, though, go and learn this. The blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. And I got it. Because I could preach a 10-part sermon series on the love of Christ, on what Christ has done for us on the cross. And I wouldn't even scratch the surface. Right? You got to get it. You got to wrestle with it. You got to wrestle with it. Don't just think you understand it. Be amazed by it. Let it change your life completely. Give everything to him. How, how is it affecting me today? Well, it's doing it this way. How is it going to affect me tomorrow? I don't know. I'm going to wrestle with God and see. Right? Wrestle with it. The blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. You need, I need, to get this idea of ransom down. It's not just freedom. It's not just a debt's been paid. It's freedom from sin. Freedom from this old life that we have. I see people that are growing right now in this church, and they are people that are wrestling with God. And it's exciting to see what's going on. I heard a testimony. I cannot wait for this person to share this testimony because it blew me away. It blew me away. You're not going to believe it when you hear it. But I see this person wrestling with God, walking with God, and God's changing his life. God's doing things I didn't think he did. And it's amazing. And it's available to every one of us if we'll do it, if we'll wrestle with God, if we'll walk in his ways, if we'll be amazed by the cross, amazed by what he's done for us, and we'll surrender our lives to him. He will. But so many of us are just going to go out of here and just go back to our normal life. And there's going to be no change, no difference. gospel has to change us. It does. Would you stand with me? Can you wrestle with the cross and what that really means for you in your life? Can you get it, the good news of God? He died for you. He died so that your sins would not be held against you. He died as a ransom. He took your place, right? What are you going to do in response to that? How are you going to live your life? Listen, you'll never earn it, but you can embrace it and let it change you. You can be freed by it. You can be freed from having to compare yourself to to other people. And you can let just God work in your life and change you. And you can share that amazing news with somebody else. Right? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. Lord, I pray that we would truly get this. I pray that the good news would truly change our lives. Lord, I pray if there's anybody in here who looks the same as they did before, before they knew that you died for them, I pray that we would examine ourselves to see if we really get this. Lord, and I pray that we'd wrestle with you if we're still the same. Lord, change us. Lord, free us from 
having to be good enough and allow us just to be your children. But let us commit to it and embrace it. Let us live for you. Father, we love you and we give you all praise. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Don't get too friendly, all right, on the way out. God bless.